Welcome to episode 79 of Breakout Culture. I'm Ed Vasey, none other than the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Charlotte Metcalf. I'm the associate editor at the magazine. And once more, Ed and I would like to apologise for not being able to air our podcast last week due to the Hay Festival team's technical hitch with our recording. But we're delighted we're now back on track. And today we're going to be talking about the Chalk Valley History Festival, the biggest festival in the world devoted entirely to history which runs from the 20th to the 26th of June this year at its beautiful Wiltshire home near Salisbury. It's grown massively since it began in a field back in 2011. And with us today is the festival director, Jane Pladel Bouverie, who remembers those early days well as she came in after the very first summer to support the founders, historian James Holland and James Hennage of Ottica's bookshop chain. And Jane's been right at the heart of the festival ever since. James Holland was on the podcast this time last year telling us about what was on it Chalk Valley. So we're very happy that Jane's now with us to tell us what's going to be happening this year. Yes, indeed. And just to add to the drama of this podcast, our loft is being built as we record it. So you'll be hearing a lot of hammers in the background when I'm speaking. So with us are two historians who are going to be at Chalk Valley, Christopher de Beleg and Tracy Borman. Christopher, he is the award-winning author of five books, including The Islamic Enlightenment, which is, and he'll be talking about his book, The Lion House, The Coming of a King which tells the story of the great Ottoman Suleiman the Magnificent, his rise to become the most feared and powerful man of the 16th century. Tracy's book, Crown and Scepter, A New History of the British Monarchy from William the Conqueror to Elizabeth II, could be more different. And this kind of spicy variety and range is exactly what Chalk Valley celebrates. You probably heard and read Tracy's name quite a bit over the Jubilee, as she's a great expert on the institution of monarchy, as well as being the author of many highly acclaimed books, a regular broadcaster, and Joint Chief Curator of Historic Royal Palaces. Welcome to you all. Thank you very much. It's nice to be here. Thank you, Ed. Well, it's great to have you all here. And uh, before we get down to discussing these two fascinating books, let's start with you, Jane, because it must have been so rewarding watching the festival grow and grow and grow. I know you've been banging the drum for history since 2011. And Ed, as listeners might know, studied history at Oxford and has always been very interested in it. But Jane, how do you explain the real surge in fascination for history over the last decade or so? Well, I don't know if it is new at all. I think everyone's been fascinated by history for ages, but um, I think what turned out when we first started this festival, there was a real appetite for it. And our audience not only comes and listens to the authors, they really buy the book. So Waterstones go to about 90 festivals each year, um, but they sell more non-fiction books at Chalk Valley than any other festival they do including something like Cheltenham which lasts three weeks so three times as long as us so there's a vast appetite out there for history and we were I suppose lucky in that we tapped into that and um, the the better known we are and we become the easier it is to persuade people to come to us um, which is obviously great fun for us because we have an incredible range of, of extraordinary historians. Well, including both of you, Tracy and Christopher. I mean, Christopher, let's just kick off with your book because it's had ridiculously fantastic reviews from everyone, including Robert Peston and Rory Stewart, and two of the greatest Turkish writers, Oren Parmuk and Eli Shafak. And Elif Shafak said, there are books that enlarge the mind, there are books that enrich the soul, but rarely comes along a book that does both. So, um, you know, well done, absolutely brilliant. Do you think this is your best book yet? Thank you very much, Charlotte, for introducing me in that way. I, I take issue with Ed. I don't think that um, 
we are um, such different historians uh, because we're actually writing about monarchs. And so the essential nature of the monarchy is something that brings both the Ottomans and the British monarchy together and draws them apart. And there's lots of rooms for comparisons and distinctions there. It's all about the legitimacy of the crowned head and whether he or she can um, hold things together and maintain that aura and that sense of um, universal appeal that, uh, that compels people to a kind of spellbinding loyalty. In terms of The Lion House, it's certainly my, my most different book to date because it's the least conventional of the books that I've, that I've ever written. It's, it's a history book, but it is written very much in the style of a novel. That's not to say that there is fiction in it. It is not fictional at all. It's entirely based on the sources that you find at the back of the book. And the, the aim in writing this book is to tell a fantastic story about characters that are virtually unknown in the West and deserve to be known. Because when we're um, obsessing about Henry's matters of the bedchamber, um, equivalent things are going on in Istanbul and in arguably more interesting things because the characters who come... Um, to prominence in Istanbul, Constantinople at the time, and not people you could ever have predicted would have come to power. They are essentially drawn from the slave caste, and they are—they start life in incredibly unpropitious circumstances, and yet they end up grand vizier, um, most favoured concubine of the um, of the sultan, or the biggest plutocrat, um, the greatest oligarch of the age. All of these people come from literally nowhere. How did you get into Turkey? I mean, you presumably speak fluent Turkish and indeed presumably reading Turkish documents in the 16th century is a bit like speaking Shakespearean Turkish, if I could put it that way. How did you get into Turkish history? I started, as so many people probably who are going to appear at this year's Chalk Valley History Festival, as a jobbing hack. I was a journalist and I was a correspondent for many years and I covered the Middle East and lived in Turkey for a long time, lived in Iran for a long time. I knew the young President Erdogan when he was just a stripling um, mayor of Istanbul. Now he is the greatest Ottoman revivalist um, around. Uh, everything he does is to some extent coloured by his view of Turkey as the inheritor of the Ottoman Empire and those great figures like Suleiman the Magnificent who embody that empire. So my entry point into everything that I write as a historian is from the perspective of the present day. And so the book is is kind of informed, um, I hope in a subtle way, by the, by the political ideologies and the political um, disputes of today. If you're sitting in a truncated modern Republic of Turkey, then you're very much aware of just how small you've become. Um, there's a great sense of empire decline. And how do we get back that sense of greatness, that greater Turkey that once existed, the huge, enormous cultural area that extended all the way from Saudi Arabia to, um, to Vienna, from Morocco uh, to the Crimea. All of that was part of um, the Ottoman Empire at one stage or another. And Erdogan is clearly, and you see that in the buildings that he creates, the mosques, they're all just copies of 16th, of 16th century mosques. The, the slightly antiquated, Arabic-inflected Turkish that he uses, it's very much not the modern Turkish that uh, Republican secularists like Ataturk would, would have approved of. All of that feeds into this idea um, that Erdogan has of Turkey's place in the world. And 
as it as was the case then. Obviously, Russia is an enormous presence constraining Turkey, but at the same time, something that Turkey can use. And so Erdogan is trying to um, retain some degree of friendship with Putin, trying to play a mediator role. Um, at the same time, his interest in Ukraine is partly historical. One of the great characters in the Lion House, Roxolana, who um, started life as a slave in what was then Ruthenia, is now northwestern um, Ukraine, very much the Ukrainian bed uh, breadbasket. She was abducted as a child and taken off to Istanbul. She could have ended up anywhere. She ended up in the Sultan's bedchamber, um, gave birth to several children by him, became his queen and one of the most consequential figures in the 16th century. So, Christopher, you're talking about, you know, what defines a really huge monarchy and an empire. And Tracy, your book, I mean, you've looked at the, since 1066, you've looked at the institutional monarchy. Tell us about your book and obviously what you've where you think we're at just post-Jubilee. Yeah, what an interesting moment to consider the history of the monarchy. Um, And really, that was the inspiration for my book, because I was aware a few years ago that the Platinum Jubilee was, was coming up. And I thought, gosh, what a time that would be to set the current Queen's reign into some kind of context by looking back over a thousand years of royal history, comparing her perhaps to some of her, I think, 41 um, predecessors since the Norman Conquest, but also to look at the evolution of monarchy itself, because we wouldn't really design a monarchy in today's society. It kind of doesn't make sense in the way it once did, certainly in ages where monarchs ruled they, they weren't just sort of ceremonial figures who, who reigned as they have done uh, in the past sort of three centuries or so. And I wanted to look at just quite how the British monarchy has survived, because most other monarchies in the world um, fell, uh, quite a few in the 18th century, and then World War I saw off an awful lot as well. And so I was fascinated by that and the sort of compromises that the monarchy has made along the way in order to still be around today. And of course, the monarchy is is much uh, debated at the moment because we've just had the Jubilee. Of course, our thoughts are turning increasingly to the future uh, with a 96-year-old queen, admittedly. She's she's from good stock. Uh, She's from long-lived female stock. Uh, But even so, of course, inevitably, we start looking to... The future. And, and I think the question I've been asked more than any other since writing this book is, is you know, will the monarchy survive um, after Elizabeth II? Well, I'm going to go out on a limb and say, yes, I think it will survive. I think it's, it, it does still have a valid role to play. But I think it's an increasingly a changing role. So um, it'll be fascinating to see uh, what happens in future. As I ask both the stupid and the slightly rude questions, as well as you've gathered, I mean, do we need another book on the monarchy, as it were? What, what, what is new? What is the new perspective on a thousand years of 42 monarchs? Ed, how could you? Of course we need a new book on the, on the monarchy. It's been many years since uh, since we've had a book, at least, in fact, I a think the last book. time, a proper book there was... Because we had in... Andrew Jimson's Lou book. Oh, OK. No, I'm not counting that. I'm thinking back to a, um, a certain book on the monarchy back in 2011, which coincided with the royal wedding. Uh, oh, yes. William and, and Catherine. Uh, so, you know, apparently uh, in publishing terms, so long as nothing's been written for two years, you can write another book about it. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm, it's, it's, it's overdue, really, 11 years after the last major work on the monarchy. And, you know, genuinely, it is a changing story and quite rapidly changing story, certainly in recent times. I had to, um, because the book was due in, I think, February 
2021. And, I, and I'd pretty much finished it. And then, and then things kept happening. Um, Prince Philip died. Um, and then there was the whole Harry and Meghan scandal. So I had to keep going back and kind of adding to the last chapter. Uh, there's, there's always something new to tell when it, when it comes to the royals. What surprised you the most? given your already extensive knowledge of the history of our monarchs? Well, I think because I'm first and foremost a Tudor historian, what I really enjoyed was exploring other periods that I haven't researched uh, so much. I fell in love with the Plantagenets, for example, but I really enjoyed some of the more modern um, monarchs. George V now holds a, a, pl- a special place in my heart. He was the one who, um, he was quite grumpy a lot of the time. You know, he, he famously said, things like bugger bogner and 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 that kind of thing but um but actually um he brought the monarchy closer to the people um and it was said that monarchy became a religion during the reign of George V he was the first monarch for example to to give a christmas broadcast he did so grumbling that it had ruined his christmas but he did it uh, nonetheless but the monarch has, i think who surprised me the most um was George V's son, eldest son, uh, Edward VIII, because, I don't know, I'd already always had a sort of fairly romantic impression of this story. You know, the king who gives up the throne for love. Of course, he loved Wallace Simpson, an American divorcee. He couldn't marry her and stay king, so he had to choose. And, uh, of course, in the end, he chose Wallace over the throne. And then, researching it, I realised what a lucky escape we had because Edward was not the stuff of which great kings are made. He was <laughs> he was vain and lazy and he had a really cruel streak. There was this letter I found that he wrote to uh, his mother, Queen Mary, after the death of his younger brother, John, who was just 13 when he died. He'd never been particularly well. And Edward's like really impatient in this letter. He's telling his mother to basically get over it and said that John's death is nothing more than a regrettable nuisance. Uh, so Edward VIII emerged to me as a thoroughly dislikable, or no, what, what should I say, a, a thoroughly reprehensible character. And quite yes. extreme views. Yes, exactly. Sympathetic to Hitler. Yes, abs- oh yes, and that, and that has really come to the forefront in recent times. The recently re- um, released papers from the National Archives more than hint that some kind of deal was struck between um, the Duke of Windsor, as he was then, and and Hitler, uh, whereby if if Hitler successfully invaded uh, Britain, he would put Edward back on the throne. So, Jane, just going back to you for a minute, I mean, first of all, you know, well done for harnessing all these amazing historians. I mean, the list of eminent historians is just wonderful. Can you, I know it's really difficult because you've got so much going on from a restoration pageant to the, trench and an iron age settlement and everything what just just tell our listeners a bit about some of the highlights of this festival i know it's difficult and you could be here for two hours telling us well uh, we have a a range of straight talks and panels with historians such as christopher and tracy and politicians everything and you don't have to be a political historian or a military historian to speak at chalk valley you could be a specialist in the history of art or history of music really anything that could be relevant. Um, But in addition to these talks and panels, we do have, as you've hinted at, a huge range of living history. So it's interactive displays so that the Iron Age settlement, we are actually building a roundhouse using traditional crafts and tools, and it will be still in progress, although they are actually living in it during the week of the festival itself. And 
Then there's traditional rural crafts. We'll have a, a stonemason working and a thatcher and a coppice worker. So people can learn how things really went. And then um, there'll be a sort of garrison 25-pounder battery being fired, a reconstruction of the death of Richard III, all sorts of things. And then the trench experience, which is incredibly popular, particularly. So we have two days for schools at the beginning of the week, m- Monday and Tuesday. And we usually have a, up to 2,500 schoolchildren on site. Um, because the festival is owned by charity um, with the object of of inspiring people of all ages with with the enjoyment of history. And we're particularly keen to to open everything to schools because we want to stop children being allowed to give up. Well, they are allowed to give up history at the age of 14, but we, we want to make it such fun and so interesting that they don't because they're given an awful choice of... Oh, either oh. doing history or geography at GCSE, which is a terrible, terrible choice for anybody to have to make. And um, so we are in a bit of a mission to try and s- stop them doing that. And you've also got big news, big news for the first time, the, uh, a collaboration with the Duchess of Cornwall's reading room. Tell us about that. Yes, well, that, that, that is very exciting. So um, I don't know whether you know, she has a, um, a reading room on Instagram, but they want to broaden it out and are building a website. And um, they wanted to collaborate with the festival. So we've got Philippa Gregory, um, who we've been trying to get for years to come. And so we're absolutely thrilled that she's coming and she's going to do a discussion with Alison Weir on rediscovering women in history, which is very exciting. And who are the other um, highlights? Well, the person who sold out most quickly this year was Bill Browder. Oh, yes. On his book, Freezing Order, the true story of Russian money laundering, state-sponsored <laughs> murder and surviving Vladimir Putin's wrath. And, and we have actually had him once before, a long time ago, when we had a panel on taming the, Ru- the Russian bear. But um, that was before he'd even written Red Notice, I think. So he's become huge since then. And I'm still not quite sure what security we need <laughs> a lot. on site. Yeah, I would say, yes, that I is quite scary. <laughs> because we know the Russians <laughs> know where Salisbury is. Observe your, I, would keep, I would keep two metres away, if I was. So, yeah, polonium levels might... <laughs> <laughs> exactly. What politicians have you got coming? Well, we m- most most of them are not current politicians. We did have one who was meant to be chairing a panel in Afghanistan, but now has to be in the states. So we have learnt to have actually current serving uh, ministers or MPs is a little bit risky. I bet that was Tom Tudor. <laughs> it was indeed. Um, he he's not going to be here, so we'll, we'll f- find someone else. But we've got, for instance, David Owen speaking. We've got Alan Johnson, um, Peter Hayne. And you've also um, got a, a variety. Chris um, Patton, yes. And Chris Patton, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, he's so he's completely sold out too on the Hong Kong diaries. So um it, it there is there is a good cross section. You've got Dan Snow, the ever popular Dan Snow talking about the ever popular yeah. Dan Snow, exactly. But we've also got some quite sort of unique things. So we've got you know, Simeon the Second of Bulgaria coming. What? Um who was sort of exiled as a child. Um and then actually became Prime Minister of the Republic. Oh, yes. Which is quite a transformation. And um, he's not obviously doing any other festivals, but he has written this memoir and he's coming to us. So I think that'll be... I used to be quite friendly with the Bulgarian culture minister. He's also a, <laughs> Did you? He's also a sculptor. Oh, really? These Bulgarians, they're amazing. Yeah, I agree, Yeah. Well, he's very charming too, and obviously related to the Queen, so it's a good moment to... Oh, to I didn't know he was related to the Queen, that's good. 
Mm. So can, can we can, I, can we just quickly go back to your book, Christopher? Because it's obviously you, you, about a huge monarch just taking over the world. Something, but most of it. What's so remarkable about this book is it's all, you know, it's all this detail. You know, it's all set. You know, everybody's whispering and plotting, and you know being circumcised <laughs> and, you know, and there's a cat fight between the mistresses and it's just where do you get all this and this is extraordinary you just say this is all original sources because any the way you write it it's as if you've been in the room I think that's what makes it very remarkable and and you is that a real departure for you the way you chose to write it like that no absolutely it is and I think part of that is down to writing it in the present tense and writing in the continuous present obviously has drawbacks, but it has a great advantage, and that is the idea. And I think this may come from my background as a journalist. The idea of journalism as the first draft of history. If you're getting primary sources that are written either on the day or very shortly after the day, then you have that sense of freshness. And if you can convey that as a writer without interposing yourself, without getting in the way and saying, well, subsequently historians would debate whether this happened in the way that it was presented here or now we can reinterpret these events in this way. And then you put in a couple of um, long um, erudite footnotes. And by the time you've actually circled back to the story, your reader's actually forgotten what's going on on the page. And for me, the whole point is to, is to bring the reader along and to show this, the way that the, the progression of Suleiman's ascent to power. This is the first third of his reign. Um, there will be um, another third coming up shortly. But the first third of the reign is essentially young Suleiman, and he comes to the throne. No one knows who he is. He has no inherent authority other than that of the Ottoman Sultan. His personality is untested. He's untested on the battlefield. And he's it's a massive minefield because he's suddenly finding himself running an enormous empire. And what he does is he surrounds himself by people who who are beholden to him and love him and are loyal to him. And he's very skillful in this way. And he's a somewhat spectral figure in this first um, section of the book. And in a way, it's told through those who are intimate with him. And the reason why we know that the two... Um, uh, that the two uh, consorts of the Sultan had a catfight is that um, Venetian gossips who were living in Istanbul at the time and made it their business to find out exactly what was going on behind closed doors because this was of such material importance to Christendom. It was absolutely vital to know who was going to be, who was, how the succession was going to play out. So the, the, the consorts and the concubines were hugely important for that. Also to know what kind of man Suleiman was, whether he was a clement man, whether he was uh, an impatient man, a cruel man, a creative man. In fact, he turns out to have had many deep personal qualities, but trying to find out all these things, they latched onto every single piece of information they could get hold of. So we know that Roxolana, the great, um, his favourite consort, supplanted um, Mahidevran, who was his, um, he, who was his great love before then, um, through a very skillful piece of appealing to the Sultan's um, idea of clemency, because Mahidevran had been very welcoming to the new consort, regarded her as very much her junior, and then when. Um, Roxolana became very much um, uh, in the Sultan's eye, as it was, as it were, and being invited again and again and again back to the royal bedchamber. She confronted her in the in the um, in a corridor of, of the harem and said, um, "Sold meat! How dare you get ideas above your station?" And then she scratched her and she bruised her. And so next time the Sultan called for Roxolana to come to the royal bedchamber, she sent a uh, a message with the eunuch. 
back to him saying, I'm so sorry, my liege, I cannot come, but I am sold meat and I have a face that all, is all scratched and torn. And so the Sultan, uh, Sultan's curiosity was piqued. He called her into, into his um, presence and she tearfully explained what had happened. And so that was the end of, of her rival. Her rival was banished, never again to be seen by the Sultan. And she was extremely clever and she was um, very charming and she won the heart of the Sultan in a way that is quite unprecedented. And she used that as a platform to become extremely powerful, not only in deciding the succession, but also in opening up a series of correspondences with other female rulers and significant women around Europe at the time, which we will come to um, in book two. But that's just one example of that, that's how you get behind the closed doors, is just to pay very close attention to these um, primary sources. And we have this incredible resource which I would absolutely commend to any historian writing about anything at the beginning of the 16th century, and that is the, the, the diary of Marino Sanuda, who makes um, Samuel Pepys look like a part-timer. He literally put every single event, everything, every piece of gossip and every piece of news that arrived at Venice into his mammoth diaries. And so if you're writing about Tudor England, you will also consult Marino Sanuda because he will be putting in verbatim the ambassador's reports from, um, from Hampton Court. And uh, if you're writing about France, you will also be consulting Marino Sanudo. Um, and so I used him enormously, and I, I, I feel incredibly affectionate and loving towards Marino Sanudo because he's just a wonderful guy who just dumped everything into his diary. So, Jane, you're, you're based in Chalk Valley, aren't, aren't you? Um, no, I don't actually. I I'm the other side of Salisbury. Oh, okay. I'm south, but um, very close. Because when we had your uh, James Holland on, it all went a bit south when he went banged on about how lovely Chalk Valley was and how it was the best place to live in the world, and we we all got very very jealous. But it is one of the most beautiful parts of England, isn't it? It is very beautiful, and and I, people really appreciate coming there, and it does look stunning. But we are a little bit dependent on the weather inevitably. And you've got two. Th I mean, I just. I was so stunned when you said it. I just slightly let it go. But you've got you're expecting two thousand children. Yeah, yeah. Over, over two days. Wow, that's unbelievable! <laughs> that's crazy. Oh well, I think that's. But that that's only during the day. I mean, it's open to the public for, from quarter to four onwards on both days. So we'll have a, a, a lot of people through the doors. I think that's wonderful because it, I think that's one of the things that makes Chalk Valley unique is is the fact that there's this parallel kind of schools festival. Um, and and I've really enjoyed speaking at both um, for the past few years. I'm doing it again this year. Um, and it's fantastic because I still remember, you know, just about being at school and um, those sort of experiences where you just get a moment's inspiration that can be kind of life changing. And I, th I think you provide so many of those moments. Uh, it's just fantastic. It's, my daughter is doing her one paper of her history A-level as we speak. <laughs> wow best of luck right this way. and they, luck I, her. I think they actually had to do the Tudors again I think she's done the Tudors seven times <laughs> it's, it is extraordinary but that's another yeah. problem there's the curriculum it, it yes. doesn't join up people go from the Tudors yes. to the Nazis yes. and have no idea what happens in between so actually a, a satellite project we're doing we're doing a thread of history and um, we're getting different historians to do a, a chapter from um, 1688 to um, the 1990s, and um, and then we're, it's being to be published as a book, and a free copy is going to go to every secondary school just so they can somehow connect these books. Oh, that's oh, the best brilliant! That's idea. a very good idea. Yeah, 
What's it called, Joan? It's the thread of history, but it's not ready yet. We're only halfway through. And so we have seven speakers each year who come and do it. And then it'll be a podcast and then a chapter and then it'll all be connected in the end. The other problem with with the curriculum is that it's too Anglo-centric. It not only jumps around from, as you say, from the Tudors to the Nazis, but it also doesn't take into account um, the, the, the things that are happening around the world that can also be brought into um, any kind of consideration of British history. And British history, is, as we all know, doesn't exist in a, in a vacuum. It exists within a much wider context. And I think it's, it's, it's very important to engage that side, the international side of history, in order to create links between the, the minds of the young people who are possibly considering um, history as a, as, a, as a field of inquiry and also the, the lived experience that they have today. Um, so I, 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 I have great sympathy with those who kind of formulate um, the curriculum and also those who try and teach it because it's an impossible task. You can't do everything. You can't even begin to do everything. But I do think it's important to have a flavour and also to get an idea that there are events happening beyond these shores and beyond the Russian Revolution and beyond the First World War. And I, I sort of think this, is, this, is, this may sound absolutely like a profanity, but I do think that our interest in in the First World War and the Cold War has become something of an obsession, and it's not giving enough time or space to other areas of world history um, that are hugely important. Totally agree. Huge good luck with it, and Thank just tell us much, uh, what the website is. Uh, Jane, where everybody can buy their tickets to Christopher and to Tracy's talk and to everything else. cvhf.org.uk well, Thank you all so much and good luck with it. Thank you very much. Thank you very thank much. You. That's sadly all we've got time for this week, so very warm thanks to our guests and hope listeners will get down to Chalk Valley. You can find all the details about what's on at the programme www.cvhf.org.uk and of course you can find us on countryandtownhouse.com We're now .com rather than .co.uk because we're so global. You'll also find our sister podcast, House Guest with interior designer Carolinette, plus the latest edition of Country and Townhouse and the Great British Brands newsletters. We'll be back next week talking to the highly talented writer and television director, John Morton. He's best known for W1A, People Like Us and 2012. It won't have escaped regular listeners' notice that Ed and I are obsessed with the French series Call My Agent. So we're going to be talking to John about his new very brave venture to create and direct the British version 10%. The critics might have sniffed a bit to begin with, but we think it's here to stay. So do tune in next week and listen to what John has to say about filling such big popular shoes. Meanwhile, we love your feedback, so please keep it coming to me at charlotte at countryandtownhouse.com. Thank you to our guests again, and thank you for listening. Goodbye.